0: Let's pray. Lord, we are so amazed at your great love for us, for how you provide for us everything that we need, and everything that you command is for our good. And so we praise you, and we ask you, Father, to help us this morning to think clearly and biblically about these things that matter to you in this last message on the church Lord, I confess that this is only scratching the surface. We could spend a year on this subject, and yet, Lord, we know there are other things to preach. And so I pray, Father, that this message would bear fruit in the lives of your people who are here, whether they are visiting or whether they are members of this church. I pray that our love for the church would grow higher and our commitment to the church would grow deeper. And that we collectively would grow into the stature of Christ a little more today because we have gathered as a church. And so, Lord, these things we ask and give you thanks for in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. Now, a little housekeeping at the beginning, and um, with regard to preaching. So many of you have come to Calvary Bible Church and have told us that the reason that you came was because you discovered that at Calvary Bible Church we do expository preaching, and that is great. That's why we want you here. However, I confess that in these last seven messages on the church, they have not all been expository messages. Some of them have been topical. Today's message is going to be topical, and it will be the last Of our seven messages on the church and uh, we're okay with topical messages as long as they're expository (laughs) in other words as long as we are dealing justly with the text of Scripture and not proof texting with the Scriptures then that's legitimate it's just harder to do that it's harder to be careful and so we're going to talk about a a topic this morning and um, and wow, that little buzz just quit. And praise the Lord for that. It was I was looking for the heater. I thought a heater was on up here or something, and it had stopped. Thank you, guys. If you did that, I appreciate it. Um, or if the Lord did it, thank you. <laughs> That's great. One of the things that makes Calvary such a wonderful church is the fact that most of the people who call it their spiritual home not only enjoy being here at Calvary Bible Church, but they have made a commitment to love and to serve the other people who are here at Calvary Bible Church. If you're a visitor this morning, just look around, look around you. Most of the people sitting near you are not merely a loosely connected group of independent Christians. Rather, most of the people around you consider themselves to be in covenant with one another, as members of a local church particularly Calvary Bible Church and so you can kind of see where I'm going with this already today I want to talk to you about church membership this is precious to us and we want it to be important to you having been raised in the radical individualism of American culture many find the idea of membership in the local church is something that is antiquated unnecessary, and some might even say legalistic. The irony there is those same people who might call it antiquated or legalistic to make a formal commitment or join informal membership to a local church have probably multiple memberships in the YMCA or in other clubs and organizations in the community That um, are not necessary, and yet the church is. But that's a tertiary matter for another day. This is not how we see it. We count it both a wonderful privilege and an essential responsibility incumbent upon those who follow Christ to be committed to a local church, and to be committed in such a way that the leaders of that church recognize that commitment. And some will ask, well, what's what's the point of church membership? I mean, I'm already a Christian and have a personal relationship with Jesus. Why do I need to become a member of a local church? And that's a really good question, and I'm going to take the rest of our time this morning to answer it. But before I do, let me just give you a definition. Here's kind of a working definition of church membership. Church membership is a formal covenant relationship that means we have entered a promise with one another. A formal covenant relationship between Christians in a true local manifestation of Christ's visible church. And I say true manifestation of Christ's visible church because not every gathering of professing Christians, not every gathering of professing Christians is really a church. It might just be a crowd, it might just be a loose gathering of belief. It might be a concert, but it doesn't necessarily make a church. And I don't want to preach another sermon on what makes a church. I've alluded to it kind of along the way. But in the Bible, the church has qualified and designated leaders, and those are elders. They have qualified, designated servants. Those are deacons. Uh, They practice the preaching of the Word of God. They engage in taking part in the sacraments or the ordinances of the church, namely the Lord's Supper and baptism. And they practice church discipline. So there you go. Those are the essential qualities of a church. And if you have more than that, that, that may be wonderful. If you have less than that, you may not be a church. Over the past seven weeks, we've been learning that the church is God's most precious possession, and indeed she is. She's the only institution that Jesus promised to build. She is the bride for whom he has given his life so that she might be saved. It is, in the words of both Paul and Peter, the household of God, the family of God to which we have all been adopted if we belong to Christ by grace, through faith. In our church, we just believe that all these truths should lead us to a high view of the church and a deep commitment to one another in the local church. With that in mind, let me share some of the reasons why I believe Christians ought to make a formal commitment to their local church. To begin with, let's consider the genesis of committed community. The genesis of committed community. If we were to go all the way back to the first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, we learned that man was created in the image of God. In other words, we were made to image forth something that is true about God, maybe a lot that's true about God. We were created to show the world what God is like. And so the question that we need to ask is, what is God like Relative to what we're discussing this morning, what is God like? And and here's what I want to tell you God is like. God is like this. He is persons in community. God, this is not a complete definition of God. Who could define him completely? But relative to the topic that we're discussing this morning, here is the root, the ultimate root of our committed community is that God exists and has existed eternally as persons in community. For all eternity he has existed as, we sang this this morning, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. At least I think we sang that in Sunday school. He is the very definition of community. You want to know what what community should be like? Think of the Trinity. You want to know what your marriage should look like? Think of your relationship between God the Father, or excuse me, God the Son and his church, and even God the Son's relationship with the Father. He is the very definition of community. And and in the community of the Trinity, there is no ambiguity about who the members of that community are. In fact, there is a rather definitive list of membership in the Trinity. They consist of three And you know the members of that community, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And despite what some may think, there are no vacancies in the Trinity, and you will never be one of those persons, and are not now. So let's just get over yourself. Moreover, God created God, who is persons in community created us to image forth his glory. And one of the ways we image forth his glory is by living in community. Committed community. Because it reflects something of the glory of God. God himself declared when he made man. It is not good for a man to be what? Alone. Shouldn't be alone. You say, well, obviously he needed his wife. Okay, that was the solution. But the problem says something to us about why God formed us this way. Why did, did He need, why did God create Him to need a wife? Now, I, I, I get it, not everybody is married, not everybody's going to get married. Some people, God has given the gift of singleness. Some people would love to be married and can't be married. It's part of the, 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 the fall that we have problems like that. Nevertheless, in the perfect world in the garden, God said it, it was not good for man to be alone. He was created for community. And so he made woman from the body of man and brought her to her husband, establishing the first micro community of humans. In fact, this first human community was a covenant community. And Moses used that little covenant community to be the model of marriage, that there's one man, one woman, with a strong bond held together for life. There were no other options. It was a kind of relationship by which the man and his wife would willingly promise to live as one flesh glued together by a covenant promise to fulfill their duties to one another as long as they both shall live. Now, I'm not saying that the covenant of the local church is equal to the covenant of marriage. It's not. It's not not the same thing. But with this in mind, it it shouldn't come as a surprise that when God established the church, he designed it to be a covenant community, the household of God. And now the church stands as the community of Christ. Now that we are post-resurrection... We are the community of Christ. We are the restored household of God. It was I say restored because uh, humanity became a muddled mess when sin entered the world, and Jesus came to cure it. And so it is the kind of community whose unifying power is generated in the hearts of the redeemed by the indwelling Spirit. So powerful is the Holy Spirit's ministry to his church, in fact, that enemies, human enemies, are made brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow members of one another, men and women who would gladly die for one another. It's inconceivable. And yet God has done this. And this is what the church is. It is a unified covenant community of men and women, That image forth the glory of God in their plurality, their unified plurality, which consists of men and women, which was a huge thing in Paul's day, that women would be included. They didn't have to sit in a different place. And and not only that, but it included masters and slaves and most radically of all, Jews and Gentiles. Whether you live in Gaza or whether you were raised in Jerusalem, if you are in Christ, then you have the privilege of being united with your fellow members in Christ. I've been studying Colossians lately, so the whole union with Christ thing is precious to me and becoming more so. So this is a glorious thing. It's a priceless privilege to have been made members of this community, not because we have somehow earned it, but simply because God has graciously and sovereignly adopted us. He chose us. You know the, the word for church is ekklēsia. We are called out. Ek out. We are called out. What are we called out of? We are called out of the world and into the kingdom of his beloved son. The question that we need to wrestle with this morning then is, how should we, who are beneficiaries of such infinite privilege, respond to what God has done? What does our love for Christ require of us, who have been so graciously and undeservedly blessed? by being made part of his church. The answer I want to propose to you this morning is as follows. If you are a Christian, then you should make an objective and decisive commitment not simply to the extended family of God, but to the nuclear family of God in the local church. Now before you were saved, you could never have imagined making that kind of commitment. And there are Unfortunately, many who are saved belong to Christ, truly, who just are really bugged by this whole topic. They don't want to make that kind of commitment. That doesn't mean you're not a Christian. I would just say, I would encourage you to rethink that position. When a sinner is laid hold of by the gospel, everything should change. Everything does change. The gospel transforms the lenses we're looking through. It gives us a new set of eyes through which we see the world and we we suddenly see it all differently. We see ourselves differently. We view our sin differently. We view the Bible and prayer differently. We view our time differently. We view our relationships differently differently and most importantly for our purposes this morning we view the church differently church who would want to be i mean there's so many options on sunday why would i go to church well just just the fact that you use that language i like, go to church as if like you're going to the theater or going to the refrigerator you know we are the church Young Jacquel Crow explains, she's a teenager writing to teenagers, so teenagers, listen up. I think she was 19 when she wrote this. She said, after the gospel saves us, it grabs us by the hand and leads us into the church. Acts 2, 46 and 47. The gospel transforms our hearts and makes us long to unite together in a community of God's people. It demonstrates to us Christ's colossal love for his church and cause us to love the church in return. It is impossible, this 19-year-old girl writes, or at best contradictory to love Jesus and hate his church. For many believers this is as obvious as the nose on your face. Um You're not in a marriage commitment with the church. We understand that you will move around. You'll maybe get a new job or or for whatever reason move away. The expectation would be that when you do that, you'll find another church and commit there and invest there. But for such people, they would never entertain the idea of moving into a community and not quickly settling in and making a commitment to a local church. But we have to understand that as the church in America becomes weaker and weaker, the the obvious becomes obscure. And that's why we at Calvary Bible Church take this seriously. So why should you get serious about making a commitment to the local church? Well, first, because of the genesis of committed community. Secondly, because of the necessity of committed community. Now, for some of you, You've probably never thought in these categories, and these are good paradigmatic categories for you to begin thinking through. Let's begin with something very basic and fundamental that we don't talk about much. God has established four essential institutions, and you see them in Colossians, you see them in Ephesians. Whenever uh, the Apostle Paul says, uh, Husbands, love your wives, wives... Uh, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Uh, masters, obey your slaves. I'm sorry, masters. No, no, that's wrong. Uh, <laughs> slaves, <laughs> slaves, obey your masters. You know, even I've been twisted by the world. Um, and, uh, and masters, do good to your servants. Uh, God has not caused the government to bear the sword in vain. You should consider it a blessing. All of these things are talking about institutions, These are the four institutions that God has established. So let me rattle them off. They are the civil government, the employer-employee relationship, the family, and the church. And each of these four institutions have three essential characteristics. Each of them has a governing authority, which means leadership and submission. So that's number one. Number two, each is bound by mutual commitment. And there are different commitments. An employer has a different commitment. They're committed to their employees, but in a different way than the employees are committed to them. But it's a mutually agreed upon commitment. And the third thing is, each has a clearly defined membership. So first is one, they they each have a governing authority, they are bound by commitment, and they have a clearly defined membership. Let me demonstrate this for you. Civil government in society, the government, the government citizen relationship has historically been very clear, and not, not as clear so much anymore, um, but ideally it, it should be. Rulers have now listen to this phrase, they have limited delegated authority. Where does that authority come from? It comes from God. God has put. The kings over you, the rulers over you. Pray for your leaders, Paul says. Why? Because God has put them over you. And they have limited delegated authority. They, they get into trouble when they go beyond the authority they, they've been given, right? God has given them limited delegated authority to protect their people and to enable them to thrive. The citizens uh, submit to the governing authorities and the laws of the land, and all of the people who belong to that country pledge allegiance to their nation, and the citizens of that land are clearly identified. And there's a number of ways to identify them. Uh, Passport, social security number, uh, driver's license, that would be for probably your state, but for your nation there are ways. Um, We know who the citizens are, and we know who the citizens are not. Of course, there are always people who live in the land who are not citizens, but neither are they granted the rights and privileges of those who are. The very fabric of this institution requires that duly appointed authorities and solemn commitment and a clear distinction between who is in and who is out be made, otherwise the institution begins to crumble. And I don't want to be political, but we see that not only in our nation, but in nations around the world. Secondly, the employer-employee relationship. Okay, so follow this, see if you see the pattern. The employer-employee relationship follows the same pattern. The employer is granted limited delegated authority to hire and fire and promote its employees. There are also clearly articulated terms of commitment between the two. They require you to show up on time. You show up on time, you work. After you work, you get paid by the employer. It's a mutual agreement. And there is no ambiguity about who the members of that company are. And listen, if it's a store, for example, let's say it's um, Ballard's, one of my wife's favorite places. on Christmas, if you go to Ballard's Design, uh, it is going to be packed on Black Friday. No doubt. There are going to be so many people in there that the store is going to be bursting at the seams with people who are in that store. But here's the thing. There is never any confusion about who has entered a commitment with the employer. The employer, abs- the employer absolutely knows who in that crowd is in some kind of covenant, some kind of commitment with him. There there is a very clear distinction, and they know who is in and who is out. At the end of the day, when they close the doors, the employees are still there, and all of the shoppers have left. The third institution is the family. God has given us limited, delegated authority as parents to lead, care for, and discipline their children. Also... There is mutual commitment within the family regarding who is responsible for what in the daily functioning of the home. And once again, there is an unambiguous, clearly identified membership. In fact, the membership list is so clear that even during Thanksgiving, when all the relatives come over, many of whom will share the same last name, which could be confusing for the little ones. We're all, are we all Kirks? How come I never met you before? Some of them you may have never met before, and they're going to be at your house in Thanksgiving, and again, you're going to have a lot of people there, and when the turkey is gone, and all the festivities are over, there is no ambiguity about who should leave, <laughs> and who should stay. I mean, it would be a ridiculous thing, would it not, to be, so, so think of the image, church and family, just as an analogy, Right? So let's say you're sitting at the dinner table and you're enjoying a good meal on some random evening and dad looks around the table and he goes, hey, where's Johnny? And everybody goes, who? Johnny, you know, he's your brother. Uh, Gee, I haven't seen him. Man, it's it's been weeks since I've seen him. And Johnny's sister, Sally, says, you know what? I was in the mall last week and I bumped into him. And I said, hey, Johnny, where you been? I mean, uh, we haven't seen you at the dinner table recently, right? I mean, that's, it's ridiculous. And yet, in the church family, that's the way we play. Somebody's gone. Anybody seen him? I haven't seen him. I haven't even thought about him. You know, how would you like to be that child in that home? There's no ambiguity about who should stay and who should go. Everyone knows who's in and who's out. The very fabric of the institution requires and depends upon a clear membership. And the fourth institution is the church. Once again, we find that God has entrusted limited delegated authority to a duly appointed leadership team, the elders, to feed, lead, and protect the church. Likewise, the members make a commitment to obey their leaders, as, as Keith read this morning, or someone read this morning, out of Hebrews 13. Was that Russ? Did you read? And was it King James? It's all the better in the King James. (laughs) Moreover, there was apparently in the early church a clearly defined membership. You say, really? I mean, those primitive people. Listen, we know they kept lists. We know they kept lists because if you were a widow and you were in need, there was very clearly defined qualifications for getting on the list. They knew, at least relative to the widows, they knew who was in and who was out. There may have been people who had need, but they didn't qualify for the church to meet the need. They were out, not out of fellowship, but just not on the list. So don't think that they weren't intelligent enough or they, didn't, they wouldn't have thought of that. Listen, they are not distracted by their iPhones or anything else. I mean, these people were thinking people, and, and I would dare say, if we were to go, be able to go back in time... And hang out with them. We would discover that they were far more intelligent than us. Nevertheless. They had a clearly. I think surely had a clearly defined membership. They were an institution. That is there was a clear distinction. Between those who were in the church. And those who were out. The very fabric of the church. As God designed it. Requires a clear delineation of who is in. And who is out. Otherwise the institution begins to crumble. Now. The point here is that all four of God-ordained institutions require these things. Authority, specific mutual commitment, and a clearly defined membership. And consider this. Christ is not only the Redeemer who saves us, he is also the King who rules over us. Now, how does he rule? Over his people? And the answer to that question is he rules over his people by his word under the limited, delegated authority of the elders in the local church. That's how he rules his church. That's how he rules as king. No doubt this was in the mind of the author of Hebrews when he wrote the words that we heard earlier this morning, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your, sh- over your souls as those who will give an account. Why? Because they are the institutional leaders of the local church. And let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. The Calvary Bible Church, we just believe that God has designed the church to function like the other institutions He's made. We function under biblically qualified and duly appointed authorities, the elders, and we agree to a mutual commitment of service and love. In fact, we have what we call our church membership covenant. And, and really, it's not, the, it's not the document that is the covenant uh, for us. It is Simply the word of God's teaching on some critical things. And if you've been here during a Lord's Supper where we have introduced new members, we have walked through this covenant with them. Let's see if I can do this without hurting myself. And here's what we say. We, we ask publicly of our new members, see if this rings a bell. Do you trust completely in the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the of your, salvation of your souls? And they say, we do. And will you make the Bible alone and not your own or anyone else's opinions, preferences, or feelings the standard by which you will govern your life? And they say, we do. In accordance with the teachings of Scripture, do you commit to loving the other members of the church as you love yourself? And will you attempt to fulfill with them the one another commands of Scripture? You see, This is all coming straight out of the Bible. We do. Do you commit to preserving the unity of the Spirit? And will you pursue the things that make for peace in the edification of His church? Will you advance the cause of Christ through the church by your financial contributions and regular attendance and service? This is is a promise. Yes, we do. And will you faithfully pray for the ministry leaders, the people, and the ministries of this church? And number seven, will you respect, support, cooperate with, obey, and submit to the leaders of this church as they exercise their biblical responsibilities of shepherding the members of this church in accordance with God's word? and you say we do. This is this is the relationship that we as a church have with one another. And we have it because of the authority of scripture which commands us to do certain things and not do Other things, which we couldn't possibly do, some of them we couldn't possibly do if we weren't in a formal commitment with one another. Or, let me say it more simply, if we didn't know who was in and who was out. And if you're thinking, if you're a thinking person, you're probably thinking you're going to have to show that to me. And uh, that's exactly my intent. Intent. So I flipped some pages, and I got lost here. Here we go. So we've talked about the genesis of committed community, the necessity of committed community. Now let's consider some of the benefits of committed community. And out of these benefits, I think we'll begin seeing this as a mandate. Membership, first of all, membership clarifies the community. The process of membership. Nothing ordained about the process, except, as I've repeatedly said here, the goal is primarily to determine best we can whether or not this person truly knows Jesus. Whether you belong to him, whether you have bowed the knee before him from the heart, with great joy, you have have been willing to submit yourself permanently and eternally to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and everything else. Membership clarifies the community. This is nowhere more obvious than in the duty of of church discipline. Matthew 18 is what we've been on for the last two weeks, Uh, two expository messages on Matthew 18, uh, typically referred to as church discipline. We called it loving confrontation. Jesus says if your brother sins and refuses to respond to private confrontation, then the church is commanded by God to deal with that sin. But how can we be sure whether a person is truly a brother or sister without a means by which we can officially One can officially join the church. And how can we officially put the offending party out of the church if he was never officially brought in the church? 1 Corinthians 5, listen to the language here. Paul is chastising the Corinthian church because they had discovered that in Christ they have liberty. And Paul had to say, listen, listen, Don't use your liberties as a license for the flesh, for for sin. And that's exactly what they were doing, which is why he had to say it. One of the things that was happening was they were all, they were boasting about, oh, how free we are, look how free we are, we're out from under the law. I mean, all these years we've been under the law, under the law, that legalism is out, and now now we're free, and they fell into the error of licentiousness. They, They gave themselves a pass, a license to do anything And there were no rules. They became antinomian. Anti is against, and nomos is the Greek word for law. They were against the law. They were contrary to the law in the sense that they didn't believe it applied to them anymore. And so here we had the case of a man who was sleeping with his father's wife, and it was known in the church, and nobody was doing anything about it. And Paul was hacked. They totally misunderstood. They totally misunderstood. And here I only read a small section of it for you in 1 Corinthians 5 A man is discovered to be in a immoral relationship with his presumably his stepmother Paul wrote in 5:12 For what have I to do with judging outsiders do you not judge those who are within the church but those who are outside God judges Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. What's he mean? Put him out. That doesn't mean physically lock the door so he can't get in. That means you had accepted him as a believer in your local church. He has been part of the covenant community there. Now, put him out. Put him out for the destruction of his flesh. So that he will repent and then bring him back in. It's really... It's really a wonderful thing, and when you study the Bible in kind of a macro kind of way, when you see this instruction, Paul is telling him, put him out. Why, why have you not put him out already? Put him out. It doesn't matter how he feels. It doesn't matter what anybody thinks. Put him out of the church. That's the instruction. And then in Second Corinthians, as you're reading Second Corinthians, Paul was saying, listen, you put the guy out, he's repented. Why aren't you bringing him back in? Bring him back. Let him return. But there was a clearly defined line. Who was out and who was in. Listen, when an unbeliever sins, even if he's part of our church, our job is not to kick him out, but rather to evangelize him. We bring the gospel to him church discipline or loving confrontation is only for believers who have officially committed themselves to a local church. And to not make such a commitment in a reasonable amount of time is to keep oneself out from under the biblical authority that church discipline offers. But church discipline is a privilege. Church discipline is a means of grace. And we haven't even talked about all the elements of church discipline. There, is, there are other kinds of church discipline. For example, if someone calls as a faction in the church, you know, what, you know what the Apostle Paul says? Warn him once, warn him twice, kick him out. No long process. Warn him once, w- warn him twice. It's is Titus uh, 3.10. Uh, another one is this. If an elder sins, rebuke him publicly. Yikes. You know what that does? You know what that does to my soul when I'm tempted. Yeah, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I mean, that's what it's there for. That's what it's there for. And you know what? When my kids leave home, I got a, I got a, I got a kid who's going to be leaving for the Coast Guard uh, pretty soon, uh, December 10th, right? And we're not crying yet, but maybe later. Um, you know, wherever he gets stationed, he needs to find a, a good church. He needs to find a good church. Why? Because he needs to be under someone's authority out there. Someone's spiritual authority. Someone who can say, hey, if you do that, you're out. And I'm calling your dad too, by the way. <laughs> right? <laughs> calling your mom and dad. We need this. We need it. We need it like we need policemen. How many policemen uh, active or retired in this, in this room or down the hall? Yep, I see you. And there's some more down there, I'm sure. Um, you know why we have policemen? Because we need them. We are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Even, even when it comes to speed limits and, you know, and being kind to your neighbor and, uh, and to your spouse. Uh, you know, when that fails, there needs to be a, a backup system. And God, in the mystery of his, his beautiful, kind grace has given us that in the church. He's given us church discipline. It is a grace to you. Just like um, spanking a child is grace to them. It's grace to them. God did not allow you to continue in your sin. Same thing in the church, right? Same thing with the civil government. And you get pulled over, and you're doing like 85 miles an hour in a 40. <laughs> Listen, you got pulled over. You should have gotten pulled over, and you ought to get spanked. But since we can't spank you, here's a $500 ticket you got to pay, and you got to show up at court, and there might be other reprisals. And you know what? It's good for you. It's good for you who committed that sin. Because now you may not perhaps ever do that again. And that will be good for everybody and if you are deterred from sin because of church bliss, discipline in the local church because of the uh, of the gift of loving confrontation which is commanded by God i think after 2 weeks you've already agreed to that if that is in place then the church is much more healthy and joyful i heard some people talking about this this week people from our church somebody and i don't even remember the details but somebody was explaining it to another person how wonderful it is to have a church where it's not perfect. Does, uh, does, does slander happen at Calvary Bible Church? Probably. Or probably not nearly as much if, uh, compared to if we didn't have church discipline. Is there sexual sin that takes place in this church? Yep. There has been that. But I would dare say not nearly as much as it would have been if we didn't practice church discipline, and we don't do, not just threaten it, but actually do it, not just say we agree with it, but actually do it. Um, when we were raising our, our littles, uh, seven kids, there was a period of time there, a period of years when not, my, not many years, when all nine of them were in the house. And as the younger ones would come along, uh, one of the, uh, one of the, the younger ones would come along, the older ones would, would see them kind of mess up, they'd sin, and, and they'd pull them aside and say, "Listen." You don't want to do that. (laughs) Because the way it works in this house, dad's got a five-gallon paint stirrer, and it chases out all temptation. (laughs) And uh, what do they do? What was happening there? Uh, We're building a culture. Building a culture, a loving culture that provides under- a limited, delegated authority, right? We don't spank the, the neighbors' kids, right? I, I, if I ever spank any of my grandchildren, which I never have, uh, they're they're pretty young. If I never spank them, I, I wouldn't be surprised by that. It, it's going to have to be a special situation for me to have to spank them. Why? Not my children. Not in my nuclear family. I'm pretty close. And 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 close enough that I that I might have to. But you see the parameters here. This is a gift from God, beloved. And if there is not a way to know who is in and who is out, then this part of the institution starts to experience decay. We start to get sloppy. We start winking at sin, having more of an oops view of sin. And that's not healthy for your home. That's not healthy for your business. That's not healthy for the civil government. And it's not healthy in the church. So membership protects the community. It protects the community. It is a protection for us. And, and how so? Well, by guarding the church's not only guarding it from immorality, but guarding the church's teaching. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 If Everyone who claims to be a Christian is allowed to lead ministries or teach in the flock, which, which is not uncommon in American Christianity. Or in, or in, when I go uh, visit our Russian brothers. My main ministry when I leave the country is to Russian brothers all over that part of the world. And they have, they have a really bad habit. Uh, before church, they decide who's going to preach. I mean, like, right before church. And I have seen it with my own eyes, a visitor that nobody knows uh, except one brother who met him as he was couch surfing through the city and uh, seemed like a nice Christian guy, so the pastor invited him to preach. mm, mm. Let me just say to you, that will never happen here. Never happen here. If we don't have a deep knowledge, by the way, uh, on the... I think it's the 19th of January. Uh, Bill and Becky Petit will be here. He will preach. Um, But you know what? It's because I know his doctrine. He's at least a part of our extended family. But it's it's incumbent upon the elders of this church to make sure to protect the church from wrong teaching. There's little discernment in the body in many churches Because the leaders are not protecting the church from every wind and wave of doctrine that blows through. And part of the reason for that is they don't have a membership policy. Uh, Number two, how does membership protect the church? By preserving the church's unity. As I mentioned earlier, Paul told Titus, reject the factious man after the first or second warning. Uh, We're told, preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We don't make the unity. God makes the unity. We are to preserve it. And this is one of the ways we do it. Number three, it protects the community by ensuring the church's safety. And one of the things we've been very careful about in our society, uh, that we need to be careful about in society, and certainly have been here at the church, the kind of harm that can come to children when proper safeguards are not in place. Membership helps us with this because in our bylaws, uh, in, a, in our policies, no one is allowed to serve in children's ministry unless they are, number one, uh, a member of the church, that the elders have spoken with them, we've asked them questions, we've given them opportunity to ask questions, we've gotten to know them. They became a member of the church first, now they're in. If you're out, you're not going to... You're not going to be down there horsing around with our children. But even then, if you become a member, then there's another hurdle. Uh, you have to get a background check, and you have to go through a, a, a process of education to make sure uh, that you can spot any kind of abuse if it happens. But the point is, you never, you never even make it that far until you become a member of the local church. Why? Because it's on the elders, it's on the leaders of the church to make sure the church is protected. And I praise God that he didn't give us all the details and come up with a way, uh, you know, with specific, with a lot of specifics about how to do it. This needs to fit in every culture. It needs to work in every culture. And so he gives us the external parameters, tells us what the goal is, and then leaves it to the leaders of the local church to work it out. In practical terms, this is, uh, this is a need for membership. Obey the scriptures by placing yourself under the authority of the leadership of a church that you have been attending. And C, uh, we've seen uh, the genesis of the church, community, the necessity of committed community, the benefits of committed community, and now number four, the covenant of committed community. What kind of commitment do the members of the church make with one another? Well, first they commit to meeting together regularly, Consider Hebrews 12, 24 through 25, where even back in the early church, first century, they already had a problem. The people were not coming. They were claiming to be Christians. They were misusing the whole liberty clause and, uh, and were not showing up. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. And let us... Uh, Let us consider how to stir one another up in love and good deeds, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some. Uh, The local church is the assembled church primarily. It's this, you know, look around. This is the local church. It's the assembled church. The assembling together is critical for us. It's where the, the essential teaching happens where we all hear it together, where we all come together, and our unity, which is invisible, it becomes visible when we gather, and when we sing, and when we pray, and when we serve, and when we hear the preaching of the word together. The point is, membership is the institution of the church. It requires commitment, not just attendance. I think I've told you before about in years past, early in the 1990s, there was a family, wonderful family. We loved them, uh, and, but they didn't show up all the time. Uh, I mean, they'd be gone for a month, and then they'd show up, and they'd be gone for a month and a half, and then they'd show up, and then they'd be gone for two or three weeks, and they'd show up. And one day I asked the dad about it, and I said, well, you know, so tell me, tell me what's, you know, wh- what's going on? And he says, oh, uh, he said, oh, not to worry. And we wake up in the morning, and, and I asked my wife and Kiss, where should we go to church this morning? Um, no accountability there. Who's going to discipline that? I mean, they are out. The true believers who are in a dangerous place because they're out. And you know what? They were just open to all kinds of doctrine that wasn't good. And there wasn't anybody to say to them with authority, that's wrong. And let me show you graciously. Let me show you why. Um, The point is membership in the institution of the church requires commitment, not just attendance. God commands us to commit to ministry to one another in specific ways. The New Testament is full of these commands. Church discipline is probably the most definitive one that um, demonstrates that there is an in, people who are in, and people who are out. But listen to all of these, and I'm only going to give you a sampling because I think there's 32 of them. James 5, 16, confess your sins to one another. Now, if you've never seen that person before, you walk into church, it's a new church maybe, you're just trying out this church, uh, you'll be in another church next week, what, what's the likelihood you're really going to confess sin to another person? Um, and what would they do about it? You're not part of that community. Now, those, those elders in that church, that pastor, they have no authority over you. In First Peter four nine, be hospitable to one another. Well, we can do that if, if you're not a part of a local church, you can do that. Um, but I tell you what, it's all the sweeter if you are in a commun- in a committed uh, community with one another. First Peter four ten, employ your spiritual gifts in serving one another. I'm just going to run through some of these. Romans fifteen fourteen, teach or admonish one another. You can teach on an informal level, but you'll never. Teach on a formal level, level unless you're uh, a member of the church. Why? Because it's the elder's responsibility to make sure that what is being taught is consistent with the gospel. Ephesians 5.19, speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Listen, that, that speaks of singing, yes. And any Christians can do that. Praise the Lord for that. Um, but it is speaking to one another. In psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I mean, uh, we're not just singing these because it's a clever little ditty, and it's got a tappy beat, you know, it's a snappy beat. We're, we're just going to come here, we like, the, we like the melody, we like... Th- that's not the purpose of it. The purpose is we are singing to one another the truth. It's supposed to have an effect on us. It's supposed to change us to the degree that it is biblically true. Ephesians 5:21 submit to one another what does that mean if you're not a member of a local church Romans 12:10 be devoted to one another what does that mean for people who are not maybe family members but how do you, how do you do that in 1 Corinthians 11:33 when you come together eat and to, uh, eat uh, come together to eat wait for one another well, you know, have you ever wondered why we have this tradition that when the meal is ready, uh, everybody's called, nobody's allowed to eat? I, it's, it's a Christian virtue. We've been taught nobody eats until everybody's here. Everybody here? Uh, maybe a maybe few exceptions to that. Um, but Galatians 5.15, don't bite and devour one another. Well, what if you do? I mean, if you're, if you're not a part of a church under limited delegated authority... Well, who's going to do anything about it? I have a dear friend who joined a very large church on staff, huge church, a staff member in biblical counseling, and uh, I asked him how it was going, and, and he was, he was overwhelmed. I mean, he, I thought he was going to quit. He said, "Brother, just dealing with the divorce cases here is just. I mean, it's going to take take us years." And I said, "Well, tell me about that. What's going on?" And he said, "This culture has developed a." It, the people have developed a culture here, the leadership has developed a culture here, where uh, if, if you divorce your wife, nobody says anything. There is no church discipline, there's no accountability. And there is one case that came in to this dear brother, and when they, and they got working, you know, first, first session, working on the marriage, they asked questions, and, you know, how did you justify this? And the wife said, well, my husband told me that the Joneses did this and they're members of the church and nobody said anything to them. Nobody will say anything to us. I'm telling you, these things affect the local church. It just gives license to anybody else. Uh, Romans 14, 13, don't judge one another. 1 Corinthians uh, 12, 25, uh, don't let there be divisions among you, and so on. And by the way, most of the verbs in this list, I looked it up, each one this week, They are in the present tense. You know what that means? It means confess your sins and keep on confessing to one another. It assumes that these are people that you know and you're committed to. Serve and keep on serving one another. Admonish and keep on admonishing one another. Submit and keep on submitting to one another. This is just a sampling of all the things God commands us to do and keep on doing as committed members of the local church. And so we're left to ask, how can a Christian truly love the church as God loves her if he is unwilling to commit himself to her and take his share in the privileges and responsibilities that the community of Christ requires? Does that kind of commitment in the church resonate in your heart? Do you realize what a privilege it is to be a fully functioning part of the body of Christ in the local church? It's a tremendous privilege, and it's a tremendous responsibility. But it cannot be fully enjoyed apart from membership in the local church. And I think that it's not only, it's not only presently true in our church. I think it should be true in every biblical church. Belonging to a local church is at the very heart of the Christian life. You never find in the New Testament a random believer who is not connected to a specific local church. We are not called to independence, but to interdependence upon one another, functioning together under Christ as God has called us and gifted each one of us for his eternal glory and joy. God exists in community, beloved. Man was created for community. The church is Christ's community. And so I ask, why would anyone hesitate to commit to the one thing in the universe that Jesus is building? Why would anyone hesitate to join the one thing that Jesus laid down his life for? And why did he do that? Because the church is God's most precious possession. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word teaches us um, directly and by implication. Pray, Father, that you would grant that we would see ourselves as believers, first of all, as members of Christ, And secondly, as members of one another, not not simply in a loose way, though we recognize that we have extended family and we love them, but that you've also called us to function and live under your sovereign rule through the local church. Oh, Father, I pray that you would deepen us, deepen our love for Christ, deepen our love for his church, his bride, and deepen our love for each other, our commitment to each other, In all of these ways that you've commanded, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.